Ephesians 5.15. We've been commanded to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. We're to walk as children of light. And it says there in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk. Not as wise, excuse me, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So just to help us with the context here, the command there in verse 18 is to be filled with the Spirit. And then there's these these participles. There's these words that end in I-N-G, okay? We're to be filled with the Spirit. And so we're addressing one another with psalms and hymns. We are thankful. We are thanking always in everything. We are singing and making melody to the Lord, and we are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That general principle there in verse 21 then leads into this discussion in Christian marriage and into our Christian homes. Starting in verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ... So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. We will look at that portion of that passage next week. I want us to start this week with the word to husbands, which we find in verse 23, excuse me, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself. In splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Lord, we ask your blessing over your word. We ask you to empower it by your Holy Spirit. We ask you to use it today, Lord, in each of our lives as you you see fit, Lord. Help us, I pray, Father, use it as a as lens by which we can see the world around us. Help us see this word, Lord, as a mirror in which we see ourselves. Help us, Lord, see it as that, as that scalpel, as that sword, or even as that hammer that you use, Lord, to break us and shape us and chisel and make us into that, uh, to conform us into the likeness of Christ. And, Father, we, we pray this and ask it for your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I asked Jason this morning to read the beginning and to read the end. The other picture that I wanted us to see there is this foundation, if you will, these cornerstones, this foundation, this, this 
established basis for everything that we're seeing here in this latter part of the book of Ephesians because it is misunderstood and it is it is received most of the time by the world around us is absolutely asinine. It's it makes no sense at all. And quite frankly, sometimes we within the church as Christians don't help that process very much. Okay, I mean, we just don't with some of our slogans, some of our sayings, some of the way we act, our behavior. Sometimes we don't do much to help validate or build up the word. I say that just let me just throw this out just as an illustration of what I'm talking about there. A few weeks ago, I saw an article where where our lieutenant governor had made a statement at a church in Charlotte. He said, we are called to be led by men, not women. And my thought was, amen to that. Maybe, maybe let me let me see exactly what was going on there. There was another headline that I read where it said that uh, that our lieutenant governor, and by the way, I voted for Mark Robinson, I support Mark Robinson, I stand with Mark Robinson in most of the things that he says and many of his political positions, but he blew it on this day. He blew it. So he stood up in this church and he made this comment that we're to be led by men, not women. No context, no background, no ability to really clarify what it was he was saying or why he was saying it. And when I first thought that, I thought, pretty cool, you know. The lieutenant governor's reading through Ephesians with us, you know. He's, we're, we're kind of coming from the same page there. But, and I wasn't real sure, so I watched it. I watched 47 minutes of it twice, okay. Now, if you haven't done that, then don't say anything to me about what I'm saying, all right. So I watched it twice. So the lieutenant governor didn't carry a Bible, didn't carry any notes. The only thing he carried was a handkerchief to wipe the sweat. And and he made this statement, and we wonder why the media responds to it as incendiary, as flaming. Well, the reason is there's no context to it. It was spoken in a church, but it wasn't a sermon. It was just a speech. And without a biblical context that helps us understand what this text is saying to us. Now, I need to be clear. Jesus is Lord over all, right? And the government has been put in place for the well-being. And we are called to be properly engaged in the government. All right? We're called to be salt and light. And I praise God when someone who's an elected official can stand up and rightly divide the word of truth. Praise God for that. That's not what happened on that day. That is not what happened. And so we wonder why it was misunderstood. The danger in snippets and bumper sticker slogans and phrases that are going to fire up our political tribe and bring opposition from the world, that's going to happen anyway. But we don't need to instigate that. And we don't need to do so without a full picture of the gospel that we see in Christian marriages and that we see in what Jason read for you this morning. That's why I ask him to do that, because when it tells us here that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, we in the church need to understand that that picture starts in the beginning and it'll come to its ultimate consummation in the end. And that what we are called to do as husbands is to love our wives 
with the picture of Christ in mind that we see in Revelation chapter 5. Where John, as he's shown this throne room in heaven, is shown the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is also the lamb slain. Lion-like and lamb-like. That's, that's what it means to love our wives as Christ loved the church. That's the kind of men that are called to lead within the body of Christ, to lead within Christian marriage. And this idea of headship, this idea that we are following the example of Christ and that it is Christ who is our Savior, He is our provider, He is our protector, He is our shepherd. And brothers in Christ, men, this is our calling within the context here of Christian marriage. So text like Ephesians is, is a magnifying glass. It helps us understand the culture around us. It's dark. It's dark. All right? It is a dark culture. Darkness is the word Paul used to describe the culture. And those who are outside of Christ are alienated from God, he says, in darkness and doing works of darkness. That's why the world is the way it is. So it's a magnifying glass. Text like this in Ephesians also is a mirror. Because I look at this text and it crushes me. It shows me all the flaws and the blemishes in my character. It shows me the inconsistencies of my life and the way I love my wife. It shows me the darkness in my own heart and how quickly that darkness comes out when I don't get my way. It's a mirror. It helps me understand why I am the way that I am. But this text is also a hammer. All right? It's a hammer. It's a hammer that the Holy Spirit uses to break and remake a cold, dead heart into a heart of flesh, a soft heart, a new man in Christ. It's a hammer like in the hand of Michelangelo, chiseling and cutting away all of the mess to bring out this man who is being recreated, if you will, into the likeness of Christ. It is a hammer it is a chisel. It is what God uses to shape and fashion us, brothers, so that we will be lion-like and lamb-like and humble, so that we will be loving and sacrificing for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the kingdom as we love our wife. Now, last week we saw and we were reminded that we were created after the likeness of God. It says there in chapter 5, in true righteousness and holiness, and that we are now no longer darkness, but light in the Lord. So there is no greater platform, no more odd countercultural platform for this light of the gospel than Christian marriage. No, there is none that's more countercultural than one man, one woman, Covening together under the grace of God to love and serve one another until death do us part. But that's the picture that we have here in this passage. Now, in the Bible and in a historically Christian understanding, marriage is an honorable estate. It is. Jesus chose a marriage, a wedding for his first miracle. Jesus spoke about the sanctity of marriage and God's design. We'll touch on that in just a minute. And even in the days of Jesus' earthly ministry, religious conservatism 
held to marriage loosely based on convenience. When it fit the platform, we spoke well of it. But Jesus saw right through it. And when he saw that, he spoke into it. And he spoke even on marriage as he spoke to the Pharisees about it. In his book, Momentary Marriage, and I highly recommend this book by John Piper. He speaks about this particular instance. He says, if that was the case then in the sober Jewish world in which they lived, how much more will the magnificence of the marriage in the mind of God seem unintelligible in a modern Western culture? In a culture whose main idol is self and its main doctrine is autonomy and its central act of worship is being entertained. And its three main shrines are TV, the Internet, and the cinema. And its most sacred genuflection, or bowing the knee is what that means, its most sacred genuflection is the uninhibited act of, act of sexual intercourse. Such a culture will find the glory of marriage in the mind of Jesus virtually incomprehensible. The fact that we live in a society that can defend two men or two women entering into a sexual relationship and with wild inconceivability call it marriage shows that the collapse of our culture into debauchery and anarchy is probably not far away. Now, Piper wrote that 13 years ago. What has happened in 13 years? Oh, my word. So I say it again. In a dark culture, there is no clearer light and no better platform for the gospel than Christian marriage. It's a demonstration of what it means to be humble and submissive and self-sacrificing. It's a picture of Christ's love for his church. And the biblical model of marriage is a window that the world can, as God opens their eyes, open their eyes to see the gospel. And so today, as we look at that, we start with husbands. We start with our role in this, men. And it starts with a clear command. Love your wife. You think, why do I need to be commanded to love my wife? That's why I married her. Because I loved her. That's what you thought, homie. (laughs) All right? I thought I loved Susan 40 years ago. Or is it 42 now? 42. She's on an airplane trying to get back from Indianapolis, so she'll, you know, she, she might hear this later. Why is it we need to be commanded to love this person? Another book I'd recommend to you is Tim Keller's The Meaning of Marriage. In it, he says this, you never marry the right person. He quotes Stanley Hauerwas, Duke Divinity School professor. Hauerwas says this, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primary institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there's someone right for us to marry, and that if we look closely enough, we'll find that right person. This moral assumption overlooks the the crucial aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that, listen... We always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means that we are not the same person after we've entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger whom you find yourself married to. 
Nobody amen that? <laughs> Susan would if she were here. Martin Luther said it's like drunk, being drunk, as only Martin Luther could say. He says the first love is drunken. When the intoxication wears off, then comes the real marriage love. All right? Now, that intoxication can last longer in some than others. I was going through a folder in my office a few weeks ago of wedding songs that over the years I have sung. Oh, my goodness. Longer than there have been fishes in the ocean. Higher than any bird ever flew. Longer than there have been stars up in the heavens. I've been in love with you. Who did that? Dan Fogelberg. Who said that? Ding, ding. Good job. You win the award. Come on. I mean, it's good for a wedding, I guess, but, you know, it doesn't take long till you realize, wait a minute, I'm not sure I knew this is who you are. That's why this command, love your wives. Jesus commanded us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, my closest neighbor is Susan. My closest neighbor is her. Jesus commanded us in John 13, a new commandment I give you, love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you also ought to love one another. Gary Thomas wrote a book years ago called Sacred Marriage. What if God designed marriage, he says in his subtitle, to make us holy more than to make us happy? Here's what he says. What's so difficult about Jesus' call to love others? On one level, it's easy to love God because God doesn't smell God doesn't have bad breath. God doesn't reward kindness with evil. God doesn't make berating comments. Loving God is easy in that sense. But Jesus really let us have it when he attached our love for God with our love for other people. Husbands, love your wives. It is not as easy as you might think. In fact, Christian marriage is the only place that takes place as it should, and it only takes place through the filling of the Holy Spirit. A clear biblical command. Secondly, a Christ-like pattern. Sacrificial, joy-filled love. Love your wives, he says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, we've already seen in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, that we're to imitate our Heavenly Father as his adopted children. We're to love like him, right? We saw that earlier in the chapter. Walk in love, how? As Christ loved us. And how did he love us? By giving himself for, up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So what does this love look like in my marriage? Or what should it look like in our marriages? What does it look like in Christian marriage? Jesus is the example. First, he sets his heart affection on us. He loved us. And then that affection takes the next step in action. That is sacrificial on behalf of the one that he loves. This heart affection is followed up by sacrificial action. He gave himself up for us. Now listen, guys. We are not our wife's savior. Right? But we are to follow the example of our savior in how we love her. 
And we're to do it the way Jesus did, meaning he was equal with the Father. It tells us throughout the scriptures, especially in Philippians 2. And he gave up that glory and took on human nature to take on the form of a slave, of a servant. That's our model. Have this mind, Paul says in Ephesians, that is ours in Christ. Have the mind of Christ. He willingly went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sins. He redeemed us. We are forgiven by the cost of his blood, it says in Ephesians. We have our forgiveness because he shed his blood. He gave up his glory and his power to become a servant. He died to his own self-interest for the self-interest of others, for the well-being of others. Guys, that's our pattern. That's what we're called to do. Tim Keller says, if God had the gospel of Jesus' salvation in mind when he established marriage, then marriage only works to the degree that it approximates the pattern of God's self-giving love in Christ. Do you hear that? We, we're called to love our wives. That's the only way we can love our wives is following the example of Christ. And this is possible only, only, only through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. It comes in the context of that. This is only for Christians. This is only for men who have surrendered their hearts to Christ and then are ready to serve their wife and their family. I thought about this and just decided now it's probably not a good idea. I was going to ask men today if they are in Christ, if they have trusted in Jesus to stand up so everyone in this room can see who you are. I did this one time in a prison after I'd seen it done in a prison. Those men there, guys, the pressure's on. And the invitation in that prison was not for them to bow their heads and quietly do something. It was to stand up for Christ. My purpose in doing that would simply be, here's the guys who this applies to. So that the, indeed there would be some, some pressure there would be some accountability. Just decided that probably wasn't the best thing to do. Although Jesus was put forward by God, God put him forward, Paul says in Romans. The cross was not done in secret. My point in this is this is hard. And it's only possible through the filling of the Holy Spirit. And a simple point of application is, guys, let's just be honest about how hard this is. Because... I'm interested in myself. He'll point to the reality in a minute, in a minute that, that I do love myself, as we all do, right? Travis and Hannah don't need to teach Dawson to love himself. How many times a night does he remind you of that? We don't need to be taught that. All of us have this commitment to ourselves. And here we're being called to deny that for the sake of our wives. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. It's a clear biblical command. It's a Christ-like pattern. Thirdly, there's a Christ-centered goal there. Notice what it says in verse 26. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. 
Why did Jesus do what he did? What was the purpose of his sacrifice? Well, there's two aspects to it. One is immediate and one is eternal. Now, even when we think about the immediate aspect of it, we have to think back to eternity past. Because we've already seen that it was before the foundation of the earth that God called us in Christ that we would be holy and blameless before him. That was his purpose from eternity past. Jesus' work on the cross accomplished the beginning of that in each of our individual lives as we put our faith and trust in him. This immediate purpose is grounded in eternity past, but it is that she would be washed by the washing of water with the word. Christ cleanses us through the gospel. Now, there's discussion about whether or not this applies to baptism, whether or not this applies to the words spoken over a candidate when they're baptized. I don't, I'm not going to go there. I don't think this relates to baptism. I don't think this talks about that particular aspect of it. In 1 Corinthians 6.1, Paul says when he's speaking to the church, he talks about the spiritual cleansing that takes place through the gospel. Here's what he says. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. So this is a picture, I think, of God speaking the word into our lives by his Holy Spirit and the work of the gospel cleansing us and making us new. I think Paul has in mind here the ceremonial washing that took place for those brides in the tradition of that day. That's what Ezekiel talks about in the Old Testament when he talks about this, this cleansing. Listen to what Ezekiel says. It's, it's powerful. In chapter 16 of Ezekiel, he talks about God's faithfulness to a faithless bride. And he says in chapter 16, verse 6, When I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said in your blood, live. And I said in your blood, excuse me, I will make you flourish like the plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived in full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair was grown, and yet you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered you, covered your nakedness. I made a vow to you and entered into covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. And then I bathed you with water and washed you off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with the embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in a fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was a fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful, beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I bestowed on you, declares the Lord. Do you see that? Picked up this filthy, detestable woman out of her blood. Washed her and made her splendid. And beautiful. That's what God does for us in Christ through the gospel. That's what he does for us. I pray the Holy Spirit would examine your heart right now. And let you see it as God does. And then if you're a brother or sister in Christ, you praise God for the fact that he's washed you and made you radiant in Christ. 
and that it's still ongoing even to the end. Or maybe the Holy Spirit, by God's grace, shows you the filth that's there and the grace of God in Christ that's ready to wash you and make you whole and clean you. That's the immediate goal that we would be cleansed. The word is the gospel. There's an eternal purpose, though, that he might present the church to himself, it says there, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's why I asked Jason to read that picture from Revelation, because that's the end. That's what's ultimately going to happen. Now, brothers, remember, we are not Christ. Amen, sister? Can I get an amen from the sisters? Right? We are not Christ. And so that means this, that my ambitions for myself and for my marriage are not always what they should be. In fact, most of the time they're not outside of Christ. And my ambitions for my wife are not what they should be. But in Christ, these holy ambitions are made clear. In Christ, this picture of what is to happen in her and through her as God uses me to that end is such a challenge. And such a picture of how gracious God is. Piper says this in Momentary Marriage. This is the most radical thing that could ever be said to a husband about the way he leads his wife into the conformity to Christ in the covenant of marriage. Husbands, are we pursuing her conformity to Christ by lording it over her or by dying for her? When we lead her or even if necessary confront her, are we self-exalting or self-denying? Is there contempt or compassion? If a husband is loving and wise like Christ in all these ways, his desire for his wife change will feel to that humble wife like she is being served, not humiliated. Christ clearly desires for his bride to go to grow in holiness. And he died to bring it about. That's the model for us. Guys, here's a word of application. The world can wreck it. The world can wreck a marriage. The world can wreck our picture of what that marriage and that woman ought to be. It destroys it. If we let the world or social media or Facebook or TikTok or porn or movies or romance novels or anything else shape in our minds what she ought to look like, we are killing her spiritually destroying her emotionally and killing ourselves in the process. Because the world's model crushes the Christ-like love and kills Christ-like growth in her life and in our own. So how do we work this way in her life? Are we speaking the gospel into her life? Are we singing over her with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs as we saw earlier? Are we thanking God for her? All of these fruits of being filled with the Spirit. Are we spending time with her in the Word? I love what Andy Davis says in this. He says, are we getting her ready for Judgment Day? Think about that for just a second. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, 2, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Here's what Andy says. I think every husband ought to think of his wife this way. Like I'm not your real husband, Jesus is. And I want to get you ready for the real wedding day, the eternal one. And I want to do everything I can to get you ready for Jesus. That's what this marriage is about. 
And I know that I'm also part of the bride of Christ, and he's going to use that whole thing to get me ready too. This is just a beautiful picture of God's grace. Men, are you concerned for your wife's spiritual well-being and getting her ready for judgment day? That's what it means to love Christ, to love her the way Christ loved her. That's what it means to be a partner with Christ, a co-laborer with him in the ministry and mission field of your own home, starting right there with your wife first. A clear command, Christ-like pattern, a Christ-centered goal. And then if that's too lofty for us, guys, let's just get right down to it. Love her like you love yourself. All right. There's a self-satisfying goal here. Look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Now, as I mentioned before, if I'm committed to getting Susan ready for judgment day, if I'm committed to her spiritual growth, I'm going to grow as well. Right? I'm going to mature as well. And I have said it before, but I mean it with all my heart. She is, in my opinion, one of the best Bible scholars and Bible teachers in this church. And if I'm just simply committed to trying to keep up with her, it's going to be good for me. Love your wives as you love yourself. It may sound self-serving. In some sense, it may be. But this is not some kind of self-cerning, demeaning attitude toward our wives. That's not the case at all. Remember, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. So his own desire, his own joy-filled desire, was behind his motivation to give himself for his bride. And so this, this makes perfect sense in light of who we are as men. That as long as I am blessing her, I am blessed. As long as I'm working to meet her needs, mine are being met as well. That as I, as I want to satisfy her and please her, whether that's in intimacy or joy or security or health or peace or companionship or whatever, then I benefit from that. Now, when Paul says, Loves your wife, love your wife as you love yourself, does he mean you love you, so love her? Or does he mean, as the text seems to point out in one sense that there's another dimension to it, to it, which is love your wives as you do your own body because you are one flesh and she is, in a sense, your body, just as yours is hers. And I think it's both. I think there's a deep, deep spiritual mystery to the unity of our flesh, to being cleaving to one another and to be one together in Christ. But there's also a practical aspect to it, too. And so this, I, 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 he who loves his wife loves himself. In blessing her, I'm blessed. And that's the way Jesus did it for us. And so there's this picture here of, of wanting to be well myself. And that when I'm loving her and serving her, that happens. Peter tells us, as we'll see next week, that our spiritual life is hindered. Our prayers are unanswered. We're not with our, when we're not with our wives in every aspect. We'll touch on that. But when she's growing, I am. When she's being blessed, so am I. And I am loving her because she is indeed a part of me. 
just as we are in Christ. Which gets to this final, this timeless mystery of marriage and Christ in the church. Therefore, Paul goes back to Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. Mega mysterion. It is, it is a massive mystery. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church, he says in verse 32. And then he kind of summarizes the whole deal, just brings it back down. Let each of you love your wife as himself, he says, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That kind of brings that whole section to an end. Again, we'll see that next week. Paul quotes from Genesis, this account of the first wedding, and calls it a mystery. Extraordinarily profound. And that the full implication of that is seen for us in a way that we can understand it in that institution of Christian marriage. It's an amazing truth. Marriage was God's design. Jason read that. What he didn't read was the background to where God said, this is not good. In the midst of perfection, this is not good. That man is alone. So he named all the animals, saw them all, and said, nope. I don't see anything there for me. And God's design was to take from that man his rib. It's God's design. It's God's doing. God created the woman. He designed marriage. He gave that woman away in that first marriage. And he showed what that marriage was to mean, what it was to be. Leave your parents. Cleave to your wife. And be one flesh. Become one flesh. And all of this is for God's glory. And this picture is is mysterious, it's profound. We only understand it through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as the Word is unfolded and opened up to us. In other words, marriage is patterned after Christ's commitment to His church. The church and Jesus' commitment to us is not patterned after marriage. It's the other way around. Christ's covenant, self-sacrificing, eternal commitment to His bride is what we're to see in the institution of marriage. Leaving, cleaving, and deeply uniting together. Brothers, let me just give you a quick word, and maybe wives too, and maybe mothers too. This is going to sound like premarital counseling, but I see this as one of the grave dangers in marriage today, is men don't leave mama. Men don't leave their mama. Or mamas don't let them leave. And the word is clear here. A husband's commitment to his wife takes precedence over every other human relationship. Parents and children included. Cleave to your wife. Counselors will tell you that this relationship with in-laws is one of the sources of tension in marriage. And just just leave all right. Now, we'll see later on in Ephesians, and I'll preach to this, that as adult children, we're still called to honor our parents. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. But we're to leave mama and daddy, and we're to cleave to that wife. And there's this beautiful mystery about cleaving and being united in one flesh that speaks to this mysterious, magical union of sex within the marriage relationship. And there's nothing more odd or countercultural in our hooking up culture. Nothing. God's design is a good gift. 
It's a sacred gift, a one flesh union between one man and one woman. It's not hooking up. It's hanging on. It's holding on, holding on in spite of all that goes on around us. And it's there for pleasure. It's there for procreation. It's there for the glory of God. And that's what this picture is of this one flesh union. It is mysterious. Paul goes back to Genesis when he speaks about the dangers that can come into the marriage of sex outside of marriage. He says this in 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who has joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one in spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin in a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. There is this mysterious reality in that physical union between a man and a woman that takes a part of me a part of my heart, a part of who I am, and just spreads it, disperses it, and takes in that from another person. That's not the gospel picture of covenant love and relationship. And so what we have here, and again, I've been helped so much by Piper's little book on momentary marriage. This is the last time I'm going to reference it, but I just really appreciate his chapter on this particular portion, this particular part of Ephesians. He says, first, faith believes God when he says that sexual relationships in marriage are good and clean and should be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth of the gospel. Secondly, faith increases the joy of sexual relations in marriage because it frees us from the guilt of the past. Faith believes the promise that Christ died for all of our sins and that in him we might have guilt-free, Christ-exalting sexual relationships in marriage. And finally, and I love this one, we'll talk about it when we get to the end of chapter 6, faith wields the weapon of sexual intercourse against Satan. A married couple gives a severe blow to the head of the ancient serpent when they aim to give as much sexual satisfaction to each other as possible. He says, it's not a, is it not a mark of amazing grace that on top of all the pleasure that the sexual side of marriage brings, it proves to be a fearsome weapon against our ancient foe? Sacred marriage. Covenant commitment. The enemy hates it. He hates it. And does all that he can to destroy it. It is, it is not surprising, Piper says, that Satan's defeat, Christ's glory, and our pleasure should come together in the undefiled marriage bed. Leave, cleave, become one flesh. Let me wrap it up with just a one, two, three, four, five quick points of application. All right? These are fast. First one is the gospel. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. And I can't think of anything that more clearly relates that than that picture we have in, in, in Ezekiel. I remember sitting in, <laughs> remember sitting in the big lobby at Watauga High School. And it was a, we were a big school. I think about 1800 of us. 
I was sitting on one side of the lobby, and it was, it was, it was about twice the size of a basketball court. And looked across the room, and there's this long, lean, black-haired girl with blue eyes. Our dads had known each other their whole lives, so had our moms. And I thought, wow, she's, she's a knockout. Good Lord, she's good looking. Man, still is. That is not how Jesus sees us. It's not. We are dead in our sins and stinking from it. We are covered in blood. We are destitute and dead. And praise God that while we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's the gospel today. And I don't care how stain-ridden your heart is or how badly you feel you're covered with the mistakes of the past. Jesus loves you and gave himself for you and can cleanse you of that filth and unrighteousness and give you new life in Christ. Praise God for that. That's the gospel. Second, brothers, be attentive. Simple, be attentive. Turn off the TV, close up the laptop, lay down that stinking phone, and sit down with your bride. Listen to her. Talk to her. Listen about her day. Be humble and be ready to, to address what... I mean, take this passage today or sometime this week, brothers. Sit down with your wife and say, let's talk about Ephesians 5. Am I loving you the way Christ loved the church? Now, be humble enough to take the critique. Ladies, be gracious enough with us, okay? Be gentle. But tell us the truth. Tell us the truth. How can I love you better? How can I better serve you? How can I help you grow in Christ? How can I please you? I love what it says in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. This, when a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home for one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. Guys, sit down and say, how can I bring happiness to you? Be attentive. Thirdly, be smart, not foolish. By that I mean, bless her. <laughs> You'll be blessed too. You're caring for yourself well when you care for her. Be smart. Fourthly, be diligent. By that I mean, don't be satisfied with the fact that she is better in the Word than you. Don't be satisfied with the fact that she seems to be more diligent in her seeking of Christ than you. Come on, guys. Step it up. At least catch up with her. And then try to stay up with her. Get up. You get up to go fishing. You get up to go hunting. You get up to take him to baseball. You get up to do everything else. Get up and get in the Word. This isn't rocket science. Be diligent and quit whining about it. <laughs> get in a small men's group that's going to challenge you and walk with you. I remember back men's fraternity. Golly. 
I saw guys growing. Get in a small group, men. Quit whining. Get to work. And finally, be encouraged. <laughs> you say, wait a minute, Gerald. That, that doesn't go with what you just said. But I, I, I want you to not be discouraged. This passage can hammer us, but it is also shaping us. About the Spirit's transforming power to make us more like Christ. I love this passage, and I hate it, like much of God's Word. I need you, brothers, to come along beside me to help me do it. I need you, sisters, to come along beside my wife, and she needs to come along beside you as we walk through this spiritual journey, knowing that we're headed there. We're headed there to be presented to Him as a glorious, radiant bride. May God help us as we go. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word today. I thank you that it is sharp and living and powerful, more so than any two-edged sword. And that today, God, by the work of your spirit, maybe it has cut deep into the very marrow of our being. Let it be so, Lord. Let it bring wholeness. Let it bring healing. Let it bring health and vitality, God, into our marriages. Help us, Lord Jesus. Love our wives like Christ loved the church. And I pray that in your name, Lord. Amen.